0: Well. Well, well, well. Welcome to Point 2 Law Review. I'm John Brandt
1: and I am Carson Messer Smith. What a funny start that was. Yeah, kind of a false start? No. Only true starts. <laughs> that was uh
0: maybe ominous. Is it Friday the 13th? I I feel a little disconcerned
1: uh, now. There oh was boy. a Friday. The 13th. There was a
0: Friday the 13th. We're not there, yo. Um, we are going to talk about stuff that got issued on a Friday the 13th. That's true. Yeah, we're uh, talking about the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court opinions and uh, Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions for the week of uh, January 10th, and that would include the January 10th issued uh, Court of Appeals decisions and the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions that were spookily issued on Friday the 13th, January 13th. And uh, as far as our typical disclaimer that we do, um, go back and listen to episode one. That's our typical disclaimer. And um, are we ready to get started? I think we're ready to go. All right. How you doing? I'm doing good. All right. Well, let's let's uh, delve
1: into these. we got a few opinions to talk about today. Let's start with, uh, is it Malia? Malia, I believe, yeah. And we start out with, uh, again, another published opinion out of the Court of Appeals, which is always exciting. Uh, Malia V. Hansen, a case coming out of... Uh, Howard County, and I would, you know, like to preface this by just saying that I feel like this is a quintessential Nebraska case, if there ever was one. This is this is um, the definition of what someone in New York or California would say. Ah, that sounds like this- a. Those, those individuals who may consider us what they call flyover country. Yeah. That th- think that maybe, you know, I came to work today in a buckboard wagon. And, <laughs> and
0: we have uh, no indoor plumbing and uh, corn and cows. And we all, I, I think they sometimes uh, misinterpret us with other people from
1: the South and give us cowboy hats and, yeah. and Southern draws. That is not appropriate for Nebraska. No, no, that doesn't fit at all. And and. Just a. This is not a cow tipping case either. No, no criminal matters. They here. make those. No okay. cows were harmed in the the writing okay. of this opinion. Uh, so this is a case out of Howard County, um, which deals with an easement uh, between two property owners. And essentially, what happens here um, is that Hanson had been uh, gating up an easement uh, that was used to access Malia's property. And um, Hanson was gating this because uh, they were grazing cattle in this area. Malia had a, a landlocked piece of land where the only way to access it was uh, to go through Hanson's uh, land. Hanson says, hey, you know, I've got to put these gates up in order to keep my cows out. Malia says, you're interfering with um, my, my ability to access my property, and this is, you know, causing me difficulty. Uh, in there, Malia says that... Uh, they had to open the gates, and then they had to honk at the cows because the cows would uh, lay in their way and get in their, their path. Would they do that? Yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> wow. Does that take you home, country yes. roads? Oh, that just – I mean, that is the sound <laughs> of Frontier County That's oh. what that is. Oh. oh, man. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, but, the,
0: okay. So uh, they have to honk at these cows – and they can't use their easement, and that causes them disturbance.
1: Yeah. They're saying, hey, this is this is materially, here we go with those legal terms, this is materially interfering with the enjoyment of my uh, easement. And so there is uh, quite a discussion, a uh, huge factual discussion in there, uh, where both parties put on a lot of evidence regarding uh, the use of this easement and the way that it is um, being interfered with. And the analysis um, essentially surrounds the fact that is this unreasonable um, is this an unreasonable interference with the easement and the use of the easement? And the district court ends up finding that, yes, it is, um, that more difficult, uh, even if you can still access it, that honking at those cows and having to open those gates, uh, more difficult equals interference. And so the, the district court says you cannot do this, Hanson. Uh, you're not allowed to interfere with this easement. And the court of appeals agrees and affirmed um, that opinion. What do you do with the cows? How do you keep them in? I, you know that that is the difficult part. I guess you are going to, and and again, there was a large factual discussion there. But I guess you're going to have to find other ways keep them off the road. Well, okay, I'm a city kid. Um, do they have collars you can put on them that give them like a shock? <laughs> Little shock collars? I don't think that works like that. Doesn't I work mean like when you that? think about an electric do fence, I guess like it? it's the same What's concept. The thing? Yeah. You know, that's that's an inter- See, the interesting thing here was they said that they had trained their cows, which I thought that was an interesting piece. They had trained their cows <laughs> not to cross down fences. So these cows knew they couldn't just put the electric fence down because these cows would not cross, cross down fences. I've been around a few
0: uh, cows, and I don't think you can train them. They're typically not uh, circus animals. No, no, not like dogs. Uh, no. And horses,
1: you don't see them high diving or anything like that? Cows high diving. It would be a, I, I would like to see riding, you know, cow riding. That could be interesting. Uh, okay.
0: <laughs> and uh, anything else on the cow case? No, I think okay. we, uh, yeah. That, that's one of those, like you're around the office. It uh, doesn't matter what the party's name is. That's the cow case. It's the right? cow
1: case. Yeah, it, it is. It's <laughs> the, the cow, cow case.
0: case. You might have several cow cases, but that's the
1: cow the case. Ca- it is the cow case.
0: All right. Anything else on the cow case? Nothing
1: else on the cow case. All right.
0: I have a state v. Murtaugh. It's a pro se appeal, a denial of an order, non pro Um This gentleman <coughs> was sentenced in Sarpy County District Court. Um, he appealed that uh, sentence on a direct appeal, and then he was sent... A- Sentenced to probation, violated his probation, was ultimately resentenced to uh, a year in incarceration on one matter, uh, on one conviction, and then another year in incarceration on another conviction, and then um, while he's you know uh, serving his time, he uh, makes the what is considered, I think, a, a novel argument that the harsh restriction, restrictions that were placed on his liberty after he admitted to violating his revocation, his bond was set, which included numerous conditions, including that he participate in pretrial services and wear a GPS monitor. His contention is that um, that's such a, a harsh restriction on his liberty that he should be given good time credit for that novel argument. Um, And he should have 58 more days and that uh, serving his 50 15 months of probation that he already served before his revocation should apply to his new sentence. And that uh, violated the double jeopardy clause of the U.S. Constitution by uh, giving him a multiple punishment for the same offense. Um, So the uh, Court of Appeals didn't really get into that. Uh, They said, uh, you you filed this as a nunc pro-tunc and a denial of a nunc pro-tunc procedurally. uh, That's not the right avenue to do that. And uh, they dismissed or they affirmed the district court, uh, which dismissed his motion for an order nunc pro-tunc. So uh, the district court has inherent power to correct the record with an order nunc pro-tunc. It does not extend to alter the actions of the trial court based on its interpretation of statute, or the Constitution, so basically, you can't change anything. You can limity, uh, remedy uh, clerical errors, and uh, you can amend a judgment and make it reflect quote, the truth," um, but you can't, uh, you know, alter anything.
1: So it was more. It was one of those uh, nice thought. Uh, we're not even going to deal with it. I, I, I think there. These opinions have to be a certain
0: length, right? Um, <laughs> So yeah, we have to meet to a word count. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean a word count. So I think there's some discussion there, and you know, it's a novel argument. But I think ultimately, uh, you, we got a nung protunk and an uh, order from that. And this doesn't reflect anything. It's a, a fairly interesting discussion about you know when is an order num protunk, when is that appropriate, and it's uh, only to reflect things that don't you know substantively change what was sentenced to. So that's that's the uh, merit from that case.
1: Perfect. Uh, the next case we have is Richard versus Department of Corrections. Uh, this is a pro se appeal originating out of the uh, Nebraska Nebraska Uniform uh, Declaratory Judgments Act and Nebraska's Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, Richard uh, was arguing that uh, there had been a miscalculation on his parole date and uh, release date. The uh, Court of Appeals found that that was not the case and affirmed. There you go. Um... I have State v. Valverde. Uh, it's a pro se
0: appeal on the denial of a motion for a new trial. Um, can you guess how this is going to work out? I'm guessing. Uh, um, yeah. Nine years after the uh, alleged, or no, uh, nine years after the jury trial and his conviction, he alleged that there was new evidence um, that um, basically made him innocent. That new evidence was a number of allegations regarding the victim in the background. There, Um, the uh, court of appeals said that in order for the new evidence uh, to be admissible, to you know, constitute uh, some kind of grounds for a motion for new trial through post conviction relief. It had to be new evidence that could not with reasonable diligence have been discovered and produced at trial and such evidence was so substantial that a different result may have occurred. So that's something they need to do. And uh, even when the newly discovered evidence must be filed within a reasonable time after the discovery of the new evidence and cannot be filed more than five years after the date of the verdict unless the motion and supporting documents show the new evidence could not be re- not with reasonable diligence have been discovered and produced at trial and such evidence is so substantial that a different result may have occurred so um it shall you got to include affidavits uh, trial court testimony or depositions attached to your motion for a new trial if you're basing it on new evidence to demonstrate to the court what the new evidence was Here, um, they didn't have anything that was really added to the motion for new trial, and the court said there was insufficient evidence to grant that, so the district court did the right thing, and that they further found that the evidence against Valverde, the defendant here, which included DNA evidence, was overwhelming, and they affirmed the district court. Affirmed
1: it. Affirmed it. No new trial. No new trial. Next case, we have a State v. Smith. Uh, this is a post-conviction relief action. Uh, the, most of the discussion is similar to what uh, we often hear, but one interesting piece in here um, was that Smith was arguing uh, that there was ineffective assistance of counsel for uh, failure to uh, prepare um, Smith for uh, the pre-sentence investigation And then there was no discussion about the pre-sentence investigation prior to sentencing, and the Court of Appeals said that that is not ineffective assistance of counsel. The counsel is not required to uh, prep the client for uh, the pre-sentence investigation process um, or uh, discuss in uh, length the findings of the pre-sentence investigation. Neither of those are ineffective assistance of counsel. Although probably best practice. Probably best (laughs) practice. I mean, it's probably good to both uh, prepare a client for the pre-sentence process and to probably say, hey, this is maybe what sentencing might look like, or, hey, this is what this said. There you go. Different standards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, State v. Anthony, we got a pro
0: se um, appellant here. The uh, pro se individual was um, arguing through post-conviction relief that he had uh, ineffective, well, he had two trial counsels. So his first trial counsel was ineffective, his second trial counsel was ineffective, and then his appellate counsel was ineffective uh, for failing to, um, one was hire an independent accident reconstructionist. He was convicted of um, motor vehicle homicide, and they didn't, hi- uh, you didn't have him hire an independent accident reconstructionist, his second uh, trial counsel. And there was a motion to recuse that was denied, And, um, basically what happens here is the court of appeals goes through one by one and tries to figure out which ones, which allegations against his various trial counsel and appellate counsel were procedurally barred. They were procedurally barred if they were not raised on the direct appeal. Um, they were not raised on the direct appeal. A a number of them weren't. So those are procedurally barred. There were two of them that were raised on direct appeal, the lack of the constructionist and, uh... Another one that I can't find real quick, but there was another one, uh, the, uh, yeah. So they didn't, um, they, uh, reversed those two and said they should have evidence regarding those two, um, Claims under a post-conviction motion, and then they further allowed post-conviction relief in the form of a evidentiary hearing regarding the appellate counsel, and then the the appellate counsel for failing to raise all those issues that he claims uh, were ineffective assistance counsel in the trial counsel. So it's like those dolls that have little dolls in them um, when you are alleging ineffective assistance of counsel if you fail to allege it well then that itself it could be ineffective assistance of counsel so the larger lawyer the lawyer who did the or not the larger lawyer but you know what i mean the lawyer who did the appellate work um, could potentially have failed to raise the ineffective assistance of counsel from trial counsel and that's how you get your evidentiary hearing, hearing on post conviction relief double ineffective assistance of counsel well allegedly potentially well, potentially allegedly. possibly yeah. Um, there was a nugget here. Yeah, um, the second trial counsel ineffective failure to hire the independent contractor; those were not procedurally barred, and then they reversed it. And the record has to be sufficient to address the claims regarding counsel's failure to hire an independent accident reconstructionist, and they were not um, at the trial
1: court level. So that's where we're at. Perfect. And so now I think that's it for the Court of Appeals opinions. Yep. Yeah, we got. Look at that it. Court of Appeals opinions done, done. And so now we march along to the January 13th, um, Friday the 13th, Nebraska Supreme Court opinions. Uh, the first opinion we have is I'm going to say Sinu. Sure. Sinu v. Concordia, uh, case out of Seward County. Uh, this is a an appeal from a uh, granting of summary judgment and then a Uh, denial of a leave to amend. Uh, This case was a soccer athlete uh, was working out in the um, Concordia gym, uh, was using a resistance band that was attached to a hook that apparently had been adjusted uh, by another student uh, since a Concordia employee had set it there. So uh, Concordia employee sets up this resistance band on whatever hook it is. Other students are kind of moving it around, probably adjusting it to use it. Uh, soccer athlete goes to use this resistance band, and the resistance band comes loose Uh, snaps the student in the eye um, and uh, creates some, I guess, serious um, damage, uh, injury uh, to that student's eyes. Uh, That leads to a uh, lawsuit uh, from the uh, student and the student's uh, mother against uh, Concordia University. Uh, The focus of this case uh, and the real uh, meat and potatoes of it uh, surrounds a a Uh, waiver that had been signed um, that was essentially waiving uh, any sort of uh, lawsuit against uh, Concordia here. And so, and I think that's one of the uh, great values of this opinion. There is a uh, long, um, very detailed discussion uh, regarding waivers, um, when those are enforceable, Uh, When uh, the language is too broad or not clear enough, Uh, when it is clear enough, it's eventually found that this waiver was uh, clear and that it uh, didn't go against public policy. Um, And You know, there's a lot of legal standards in here that we see that, uh, you know, a waiver like this must be clear, explicit, uh, comprehensible in each uh, essential detail, Um, and then they look at the difference between an exculpatory clause and an indemnity clause, so um, essentially uh, a clause that says I'm not going to sue you and a clause that says I'm going to indemnify you and the difference between those two, which again, I think uh, can be value in practice, both both for the individuals writing those policies and also for uh, individuals who may face uh, a policy like this and want to try to make uh, some sort of claim against uh, a, a business or a college or something like this. Um, and again. That was a lot of the discussion was that um, assumption of risk and this waiver. And then there was a pretty good discussion on uh, when you're trying to seek to amend, um, before the close of discovery, but after a filing uh, for a motion um, for summary judgment. and um, The court articulates that the standard at that time when you uh, seek to amend a complaint, uh, again, before the close of discovery, but after the filing of a motion for summary judgment, um, is essentially um, whether the pr- proposed amendment could withstand um, a, sum- uh, a, a summary judgment motion. So whether or not, if you change that complaint, if that amendment itself could withstand a motion for summary judgment, and so it's based on whether or not it's futile. Um, so if it's if that amendment would be futile then uh, it's not allowed or or the district court doesn't have to allow uh, you to amend your complaint. That's what um, happened here. Essentially, the plaintiff wanted to um, allege gross negligence and nothing that they alleged in the complaint rose to the level of gross gross negligence. That's what the district court found, um, and the Supreme Court agreed with that and affirmed on both grounds. This is, this is one of those you need to take a look at. Very much so. Yeah.
0: Um, it's got both sides. I I, I can I see both sides uh, from a practical standpoint to help you. Um, <clears throat> you got a clearly articulated set of standards for what you need to put in a waiver that's been accepted by the Nebraska Supreme Court. And then um, I'm also a little grumpy about it because you got this injured gentleman, uh, right? Absolutely. Um, who has no recourse because they signed something at some point. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Part of me feels for that, and it's like, well, are you, you're severely, you're, you're injured, right, to his eye, right?
1: Yep, absolutely to the eye. Yep. and
0: there's no recourse for that to help make that right, and you're supposed to have that be foreseeable and have that be something that you're going to look out for, and that you're waiving and indemnifying um, this larger entity. And there's any kind of equal bargaining power in that that strikes me as odd.
1: Right? Well, and I think it's just always a tough concept to think about waiving uh, negligence. Again, we know that gross negligence can generally sure. overcome waivers. But just the thought of we don't even get to get into the fact maybe uh, Concordia University was or maybe a party again with a waiver was negligent. Uh, but here we don't even get to address that because, like you said, uh, in a um, very inadequate bargaining situation, there was a waiver that was signed and now uh, we don't get anything. But either way, I think both um, for, for litigators on on both sides and for uh, transactional practitioners, uh, anyone who advises business business is just, I think, a very, very valuable opinion.
0: Yeah. I think everybody's got to take a look at that one. Um, Anything
1: else on that one? Nothing else on that one.
0: All right. I had Alpha Wealth Wealth Advisors and Michael Hall versus Jenna Cook. Uh, It was issued January 13th. And basically um, what happened here was a directed verdict which dismissed an employer and an employee slash partner in this entity known as Alpha Wealth Wealth Advisors. Mr. Hall, the uh, plaintiff here, was injured in an accident um, and through the negligence, admitted negligence of Ms. Cook, the defendant, and not only did he bring a claim against Ms. Cook for his personal injuries, Alpha Wealth Advisors LLC brought a claim and said we also lost um, productivity in in Mr. Hall and commissions that Mr. Hall would have otherwise um, earned, but for the negligence of Ms. Cook. This is a good discussion here. I I think it's an interesting claim to bring as far as an employer or partner uh, saying, hey, we lost out too. Um, The court here, the evidence that they had was a forensic economist, Dr. Rosenbaum, um, who came in and and testified regarding the decrease in uh, income that is potentially uh, occurring as a result of this accident. W- it was heavily objected to when he tried to say that it was caused by the accident and the, there was no offer of proof that was made. I think that's an important piece here. They also had uh, chiropractic bills that were brought in um, and they were also unable to tie those um, the loss of productivity through the chiropractor, um, to the accident. So there were a couple deficiencies there in the evidence they had before them. Um, ultimately the directed verdict was, uh, given for the defendants to dismiss the alpha wealth advisors. And that was affirmed on appeal here. Uh, and the, um, Nebraska court or Nebraska Supreme court held uh, that it, the the injury has to be personal when you're going to allege personal injuries, and that's that's what you need to do. And any claim for lost profits, uh, in particular, must be supported by some financial data which permit an estimate of the actual loss to be made with reasonable certitude and exactness. And then, it, can I have a little poetry corner? I would l- little wax wax poetically please <laughs> well, no no it's not me waxing they are waxing oh they're this, waxing they're well, waxing. yes this we'll is, have a little this yes. is some poetry, a little supreme court poetry a little supreme court poetry okay um, the jury uh, as a result we found that if the issues of damages had been submitted to the jury the jury would have been left to rove without guide or compass through the limitless fields of conjecture and speculation That's that's that I didn't count the syllables, but I think it's some kind of haiku. I I, maybe a soliloquy. Maybe, maybe I'm not sure, but uh, the evidence offered uh, was insufficient. And oh, and then there's one little uh, also practice pointer here. So there were some evidence of the financial data that he lost that was offered for summary judgment. It was not reoffered at trial. Um, And while the, uh, on the appellate record did have that information in it, since it wasn't part of the trial record that was, that was presented on appeal, they couldn't, and the jury didn't consider it. They can't weigh whether they made the right decision or the judge made the right decision in ordering a directed verdict based on that evidence. You got to have trial evidence. So you got to reoffer it. If it's uh, something that you previously did for summary judgment, you got to reoffer it at trial, find a way to get it in and then, uh, have the, uh, record be complete on your,
1: your client's damages. So always reoffer, try to make them, make them deny it again, or at least again, bring are it you familiar with
0: Zeno's paradox? <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> well, so you just keep offering it, you know, and then uh, is it ever really offered if you're offering it and then you're offering it for proof and then you're offering not very practical right? No. Okay. Uh, that, that's what you need to do, but you do need to do it as practically speaking, you got to reoffer. I'm, I'm being facetious with the Zenos thing, but you gotta, you gotta reoffer whatever you offered before. Uh, if it's
1: important for your trial, um, you got to reoffer it. You got to get it in. Perfect. Good opinion. Yeah, it is. A it's good always opinion. good when you have discussion damages. I feel like, cause that's always a very, and there's it's some a practi- tough area.
0: and there's some practical points it's like you need to uh, do X y and Z and the offer of proof wrinkle always do an offer of proof like that's that's in here too I think uh, if once I'm finding that you pay attention to these and uh, you you kind of get uh you get some understanding of, of what the Nebraska Supreme Court might want
1: and what the law wants yeah what do they want to see and how do we how do we make that record uh, for Compl- them and then how do we make it yeah easier for them to to understand and be able to actually give us the result that we uh, want for our clients. Yeah. Uh, So then the last opinion we come to from the Nebraska Supreme court is Molring uh, versus Nebraska department of health and human services. This is a um, case that was litigated in uh, Lancaster County, I believe, uh, but was um, a case that stemmed from uh, Molring's employment as a teacher at the Kearney YRTC Um, Employment there was terminated after two school years, so after uh, school ended the second time, uh, YRTC says, uh, okay, Mulring, you're, uh, you're, not, you're not coming back. Uh, Mulring argues uh, that he was not on a probationary employment period uh, where he could be terminated without cause, uh, so that two-year mark matters because after two years uh, they would have needed cause, but he's saying he was not on that two-year probationary period because he was employed for two years, uh, because here two years meant the two school years, not two calendar years. Um, and so the, the whole issue is, uh, was, you know, is that two school years or is it two calendar years? And so uh, was cause needed or was cause not needed? Um, and here uh, a year meant a calendar year. Uh, There's some discussion uh, within the statutes of uh, how it's referenced to and uh, what it should usually mean, and uh, again, just, just some kind of general discussion on uh, why we reach uh, calendar year versus school year. Uh, but anyway, they find that it was calendar year, uh, not school year, uh, so morning was not entitled to um, a, a cause standard uh, for the termination, um, and that opinion was affirmed.
0: So year means year, except when it's a year.
1: Yeah. Y- well, no. Year means year, except for when it doesn't. I, I always <laughs> like to think that. <laughs> okay. So calendar year means calendar year, except for when it doesn't. And fiscal year, and then school and year. And school year means something else uh, when they need to. Okay.
0: Well, this
1: is this one has kind of lasted a year, hasn't it? Yeah, we, we might have crossed over the the points of the law reviews. Oh, well, it's fun. It's just part of it. This is a song you you liked. I requested this? I thought so. Really? I mean, what, am I a, wrong? what a long intro. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll be back next time. I'm John Brant, And I am Carson Messersmith. That is
0: Point Two Law Review. We'll be back next week. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.